birth to a son, and you are to call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word of God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. The second reading is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, and it can be found on page 1501 of the Church Bibles, and it's also on the screen. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfil what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Well, good evening, everyone. And uh, on behalf of Narelle, my wife, and Sally, my daughter, and, uh, hey Sal, uh, we'd like to wish you all a very Merry Christmas. And some of you I haven't met, uh, I hope we can rectify that. I would love to meet you, and I'm so glad that you can be here with us and the family at Trinity Church Aldgate to celebrate Christmas Eve with us tonight. Will you pray? Father in heaven, thank you so much that on the eve of the celebration of Jesus' birth, we can meet and take time out and consider the immense significance of you entering our world and coming amongst us. And we know that this was an immense act of condescension and humiliation really for you, and yet at the same time we marvel that Jesus could become a human being and not compromise his divinity. And that says something about what it means to be made in your image. And we praise you the affirmation that is and we ask that tonight you'd help us to love you with our minds and to reflect on what it means that you came amongst us in Jesus name amen so tonight we meet 
to celebrate the miraculous, God entering the world via a virgin, a virgin woman. And that's what you believe, isn't it? You said it. I heard you. You said, I believe that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Do you believe it? And does it matter? To most people, of course, it's fanciful and it's impossible. Ridiculous. In fact, the idea that Christians would believe this is laughable and speaks to our gullibility. And this especially in light of rumours of other virgin births circulating in the ancient world. For Christian people, of course, this is a challenge. Uh, so what can we say to people who denounce the virgin birth? Right. And does it really matter anyway? Well, I think first thing we need to say is that we can understand that those who think the virgin birth is a fairy tale and who believe it to be impossible. Because the simple science of reproduction <laughs> says that a human baby comes from the meeting of a male sperm and a female egg, and a child therefore born to a virgin who's not on the IVF program uh, simply isn't possible. To which I say, well, why would you need to think that? To which the answer is, because no child is made that way. But I wonder if you just saw what happened. Our conclusion was drawn on the basis of what experience and science has told us. But just because experience and science tell us that miraculous episodes don't usually happen doesn't mean that they can't ever happen. To say so is actually to commit a crucial error of logic. It would be like concluding that because each morning the sun has come up and has done so for thousands and thousands of years, that it's impossible for the sun never to not come up in the morning. But that wouldn't be right, would it? I mean, what if the sun self-destructed? Uh, what if an almighty God stopped the earth from spinning? It would be remarkable, it would be unlikely for that to happen, and we would say, precisely, that's what makes it a miracle, you see. It's not meant to be normal. In other words, once you admit the possibility of God, no one can say that just because the laws of nature tell us of how things normally work, that they could never be supernaturally contravened, should God so desire to do it. Just because our world operates with normal patterns and processes which we describe as normal, it doesn't necessarily follow that the abnormal could never happen. It could, if you admit the, the possibility of God. Because why couldn't God step into our world of natural laws and perform a miracle if he wanted to? Now, you'll say, ah, yes, but there are many people who are atheists and who like to say God doesn't exist. To which I say, yes, they're speaking out of turn. Uh, how so? Because no one can say that God does not exist. Not truly. They can't say that as a fact, except that they're speaking for their, themselves. I believe God doesn't exist. But you can't say God doesn't exist and for that to be true. How so? Because logically the only way you could say that is if you knew everything. Because God could, we all have finite knowledge, don't we? Um, well, what if God exists outside the realm of your knowledge? <laughs> so the only way you can say and it be true that God doesn't exist is if you're omniscient, in which case you've just said that you're God and your argument self-destructs. Okay. So every thinking person must at least be able to admit the possibility of God existing. And if you can do that, then you can't say that the virgin birth 
is an impossibility. It has to be possible if God exists. You with me? Or have I bamboozled you after that wine? Okay, so someone might say, yes, but surely it's much easier to believe that Mary wasn't a virgin and Jesus was fathered by someone other than Joseph. In other words, the virgin birth may not be impossible, but it's unlikely. It's improbable. Now, that's a stronger argument, isn't it? And I'd have to agree. If history had judged Jesus as a normal person like you or me. But history, of course, has not judged Jesus that way. History has judged him as the most respected human being ever to walk this planet, who lived a life of impeccable integrity and exposed the flaws in others and yet attracted so many people to him. Billions of people throughout history have worshipped him as the Son of God. Millions have given their lives for him. His words and actions undergird most uh, Western societies. They have changed more lives than anyone else. He has changed more nations, more causes, more empires than any other person. Millions claim that he still, uh, he still changes their lives today. And all of this from a carpenter's son born in a backwater at the edge of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, who never travelled more than 100 miles from his birthplace. He wrote no book. He led no army. He um, deposed no king. He was only in the public spotlight for three years before being crucified between two common criminals. He is not normal, you see. What I'm saying is that given the massive impact that Jesus continues to have in history, and you throw into that the historical weight behind the resurrection of Jesus, which is much easier to prove than the virgin birth. But it suddenly makes the virgin birth of Jesus much more likely because he's not like one of us. He is singularly unique. And that makes the likelihood of a miraculous birth much more plausible even to... Twiddle the wire. Skeptics can be hard-nosed, of course. They may say... Christians have got it all wrong. You know, the word for virgin simply means young maiden, not woman who's never slept with a man. Well, strictly speaking, that's true in the Hebrew used in Isaiah chapter 7, which prophesied a virgin will give birth to a son. But it's not true of the Greek word used in Matthew and Luke. And in both Isaiah and in Matthew and Luke, even a casual glance at the context will tell you that the normal meaning of, meaning of the word virgin is what's meant, because otherwise the context makes no sense. Matthew and Luke are very clear what's on view. Matthew says that Mary was found to be with child before Joseph and Mary had come together. He said they had no union until she gave birth to her son. A skeptic might say, well, yes, but what about the possibility of another man? Well, in Luke, Mary asks the angel outright, how can I be with child if I'm a virgin? So when you look at what the Bible actually says, the dodgy translation objection doesn't hold. And it's very important to know that the Bible not only speaks of the virgin birth, but also anticipates today's objections to it. You take Mary and Joseph. You know, the very fact that Mary asked, how can this be? The very fact that Joseph was contemplating dissolving the engagement tells us that they are not ignorant simpletons. They know the birds and the bees, right? They don't, may not know the scientific basis of how babies are made, not in the detail we do, but they know enough. And the fact that the gospel writers included Mary and Joseph's struggles and questions tell us that Matthew and Luke anticipated the sort of questions being asked by those who'd read 
and who'd hear the Gospels. So it's wrong to say in the f- that people in the first century just believed it because they were ignorant and more primitive than we were. We are. But there's another objection, you know, that the birth of Jesus is just a legend and that the inventors of Christianity took this from elsewhere and you hear this sort of stuff on, on ABC, uh, on the spirit of things or something like that. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, the inventors of Christianity borrowed this from the ancient world because virgin births were a dime a dozen in the ancient world. The problem with that is it's simply wrong. Um, Because when you look into it, there are actually no other examples in the ancient world of virgin births. There are none. The claim that they are is misguided and wrong. I recently um, listened into um, a uh, debate between... Professor Chris Forbes, who's a uh, professor of ancient history at Macquarie University, and a former pastor who had become atheist and was now kind of an atheist evangelist, and they were going head-to-head on this very issue. And um, the Chris Forbes challenged his atheist opponent to list the examples of virgin births in the ancient literature and ask, after some blustering, you know, he came up with one example uh, Romulus, and the le- legendary founder of Rome, who was said to be born to a vestal virgin. He said, there are others, though. Chris Forbes said, yes, but when you read from the primary source who first wrote about Romulus, and he did it, he read it out, he said, yes, you'd, you're told that he was born to a vestal virgin, but a festal virgin who was forcibly violated and therefore not a virgin at the time of the birth. And he said, ditto for Augustus, ditto for Plato, ditto for Perseus, ditto for all the so-called men born to virgins in the ancient world except Jesus. So what I'm saying is Jesus is unique. There are no other parallel examples. So this is very highbrow, isn't it, for Christmas Eve? Anyway, once you say that miraculous births are possible, in the case of Jesus, not improbable, once you say that the Bible itself speaks of a virgin birth, it's not a dodgy translation, Once you say that the case is unique, it's not meant to be normal, the question then comes up, well, does it matter? And so I want to ask you tonight, does it matter? Does it matter that Jesus was born to a virgin and not just to a woman? And if it does, why does it matter? So what's at stake? Well, according to Matthew and Luke, what's at stake is the very important issue of who is Jesus. And this is a question relevant to every person in this room. Who is he in reality, and then who is he to you? In Matthew, the angel tells Joseph that the child conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. And the significance of that is unpacked when we read, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through his prophet, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in Matthew, the first implication of the of Jesus' um, virgin birth, or the virgin birth, is Jesus' identity. He is God himself. He is God who has turned up to be with us. Now, in Luke, the angel's words give, uh, given to Mary give another spin on this. You will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. And there's the announcement. But listen to the implication. <clears throat> he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And then Mary says, well, how can that be since I'm a virgin? To which the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And now hear the implication. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. 
In Matthew and Luke, the fact of the virgin birth bears directly on the identity of the child. In Matthew, he is God with us. In Luke, he is the Holy One, the divine Son of God. In fact, both of the, so the, the fact of the virgin birth means that he is divine in both of them. He is God in the flesh. And that is really important. Like the two lines of notes on a piano score, you've got the upper and the lower. In Jesus, we have the upper score, Jesus is God, and the lower score, Jesus is man. I want you to think for a moment of the other alternate ways that Jesus could have come to earth. What if God had made Jesus in heaven and just beamed him straight down to earth as a fully grown adult? Do you think that if he'd done that, that we'd really have believed that Jesus was fully human and not an angel or an alien? Okay? He had to be born for us to believe he's a person, a human being. Take another possible scenario, that Jesus was an ordinary person of ordinary birth whom God later zapped with a divine nature. Without a beginning no different to anyone else's, do you think people would really believe he was fully God? When you think of the other possibilities, you see the wisdom in what God did. What better way for Jesus to be accepted as fully human than by being born of a woman? What better way for Jesus to be understood as fully divine than being conceived of supernaturally in the womb? The virgin birth of Jesus gives, us, uh, gives to us someone who is at the one time just like us and someone who is wholly different, fully God, fully human, God in flesh. Now, if we were to ask the question, why is that important? Then there are three direct applications, revelation, atonement, redemption. First is revelation. This is the point John makes in chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And time and time again in John's gospel, Jesus himself makes this point, that because he came from the Father, what he does is he reveals who God is. He reveals God's very words, his character, his actions. Let's have a look. So, John 8, 19, if you knew me, you would know I came from the Father as well. I'm telling you what I've seen is, my, is uh, seen in my Father's presence. John 8, 42, if, I, if God were your Father, you'd love me, for I came from God and, and am now here. John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. John 15, 9, as the Father lo has loved me, so now I love you. You want to know how, whether God loves you? You look at how Jesus treated people. John 8, 15, everything I've learned from my Father I've made known to you. If Jesus did not exist beforehand as the eternal Son of God in heaven, he could not have revealed God to us with such intimacy. And when you think about it, the fact of the virgin birth of Jesus means that Jesus is the divine Son of God who has come to us from God and therefore can reveal to us the true nature of God as Father. Now, let me be politically incorrect for a moment. If I was to speak entirely kind of on an apologetic level, this is why Jesus will always be head and shoulders above Muhammad as a prophet. Jesus' pre-existence with God in intimate terms as God the Son 
means that only he can reveal God with first-hand experience as Father. And this is why the concept of God as Father is completely foreign in the Islamic religion. They call Allah many things, but never Father. Only the one who was the pre-existent Son of God who came from the Father can reveal him that way. It all hinges on the virgin birth. You take away Jesus' divine status, you take away his conception by the Holy Spirit, you take away the virgin birth, and you take away his revealing of God to us. And when we take away that, you take away the relationship. So it matters. That's the first R, revelation. The second letter is A for atonement. Matthew is very strong on this point. Joseph, uh, slide please. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So the logic moves from the miracle of Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit to his role as saviour. That is what it means for God to be born in the flesh. That is the implication of Jesus being born to a virgin. This means that God has brought salvation to us, salvation from our sins. How does this work? We haven't got time to go into the intricacies of the sacrificial system, except to say that God treats our rebellion against him very seriously. Forgiveness of sins, salvation, does not come cheap. It has a price. Not because God is stingy, but because God is holy and he is just, and with sin comes punishment and death, and the debt must be paid. But in order for us to be released from not paying that debt, the debt must be paid by a legitimate substitute. And yes, there were animals in the Old Testament sacrificial system, but they only worked because of the better sacrifice that was to come. Because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away human sins because a bull isn't a person and a goat isn't a person and their blood is not a true substitute for ours. For a sacrifice to truly work for us, it needs to be human, not pretend human, fully human. But which human? Well, it has to be a sinless human because a guilty human being sacrificed would only get what, they're being de- what they deserve. For a sacrifice to work on behalf of another, the sacrifice being offered needs to be sinless. And so it needs to be a sinless human. But still, you've got a problem because how, how can the sacrifice of one human, even a sinless human, if such a person existed, be a legitimate substitute for the sins of the whole world? Well, it can't. It can only be a substitute for the sin of one. Unless, of course, the human who sacrifices their life is more than human. Unless that sinless human who gives his life as a sacrifice for sin is also God himself. You see, it's only through the sacrifice of the sinless Lamb of God who is fully man and able to stand in our place and also fully God able to pay for all of our sins that God's righteous anger is turned away from us once and for all and atonement made. You take away Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit. You take away Jesus being born of the Virgin Mary. You have someone who is man but not God. You take away that. You take away the atonement. You take away our saviour. You take away our salvation. We are left dead in our sins. It matters. Jesus' revelation to us of what God is truly like comes from this. Him being the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world comes from this. And finally, the last R, 
redemption. This note is sounded for us in Luke in the angel's words to Mary. Mary asks the question about her being a virgin and pregnant, and the angel says, don't be afraid. And then he says, you will be with child, and we'll give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And then he tells her just how great this child will be. The Lord God will give him the throne of, our father, of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And here we're told what shape our salvation takes. Forget cartoons of angels on clouds playing harps. The shape of our salvation is the Son of God sitting on David's throne, Jesus ruling over his people in a kingdom that will last forever. That's the shape of our redemption. It's of Jesus lifting us up to heaven to enjoy all the benefits of living under the reign of the Prince of Peace. But it can't happen without the virgin birth. Why not? Because without the virgin birth, we don't have someone coming down to us from God, someone who coming from God takes on our humanity so that by dying for our sins, paying the penalty for our sins, can then lift our humanity back up to heaven through his resurrection and ascension into heaven. For us to be lifted up into heaven, we need someone who can come down from heaven to do it. Without him being from God, he couldn't have done it. Without him being fully human, he couldn't have lifted us up. The one thing the virgin birth of Jesus does tell us is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. You take it away, not only do you take away Jesus' revelation of God to us and relationship, you take away the atonement of our sins, you take away our hope in final redemption. But I hope we are people who believe. He say, I do believe in this. This miracle that we celebrate on Christmas. God coming amongst us in human form. Because he has shown us what God is like. And we have relationship with God our Father. And he has atoned for our sins. And by believing that can be true for you. And he has shown us what a wonderful redemption we have. To live in his kingdom under the reign of the Prince of Peace. Do you believe it? I hope you do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that Jesus is God in the flesh, Emmanuel. And Lord, we, we worship him this Christmas Eve and we thank you that he came amongst us at such great cost to himself that we could be redeemed, atoned for and know you. In Jesus' name, amen.